Just a heads up that this podcast contains themes of family violence and in this episode, suicide. Which may be triggering. If you're listening in Tasmania where this podcast is made and you need support now, you can contact the free Family Violence Counselling and Support Service on 1800 608 122 or you can call the 24-hour National Support Service on 1800 RESPECT. If you're in an emergency, please contact triple zero. This podcast also contains some legal information which is not intended to be legal advice. You will find a list of legal services that you can contact for individual advice in the show notes. Particularly if someone is very good at making you feel fear without hitting, you know, overtly hurting you. It can be threats of, you know, I'm so on edge, I could do anything, and you've got to come home. That sort of thing keeps you worried and in fear. So this is someone whose voice we've had to change, and she's talking about fear. It's subjective, right? What frightens one person could be argued wouldn't frighten another. I'll tell you what's not so subjective. Holes in the wall. Yet many people will walk past them without thinking about what they might really be seeing. In this episode, we're going to hear about some of the common ways people who use family violence might try and create fear in their partners. There are ones that have physical signs, such as damaging someone's property, and ones that don't like threats. Hey, it's Penny Terry here, and I thought these two topics were more in line with what I sort of expected from people who use family violence. But again, what I've learned is I didn't really get how complicated it can be. He knew what he was doing and he punched holes in the wall because he'd say, this is what your head would look like if I punched you, but I'm going to punch the wall instead. I'm so angry. Things like that. So, yeah. What kind of threats did you get used to, I suppose, or did you hear a lot? Yeah, and this, again, sounds incredible to anyone who hasn't been through it. Um, the biggest threat I think I'd received on the, on a daily basis was um, either I can kill you and bury you out here and no one would know where you are and I would just say that you'd run off or the worst threat of all was I'll take the children from you and my mother will look after them. She loves them, they love her, they'd love to live with her and this would have happened if you have tried to leave or telling anyone um, what's going on. So that kept me there for 17 years. If you've been listening along to the other episodes, you'll recognise this voice as Deborah Thompson. And Deb's also got a book called Whose Life Is It Anyway? And you'll find the link in our show notes. Deb's talking about some of the ways that she was controlled by fear. And there are all sorts of things that can be done and said to create that fear. And I really wanted to understand that better so that we could listen out and look out for this stuff and have more chance of helping. 
It's a common and hostile tactic to break the things you love out of retaliation for having the audacity to stand up for yourself or to ask them to be accountable for something or be responsible for something or to actually be rude enough to try and leave the relationship. You know, you can guarantee that some of your possessions will be damaged or wrecked. This is Torna Pittman. She's done her PhD in coercive control, is a researcher and counsellor and I guess overall expert on family violence. There's hardly anything that she hasn't heard about the different ways people are controlled by fear in abusive relationships. Women will say, I often get threatened with, you know, you might, you might want to check out your horses in the paddock. Then there's the more insidious stuff where in the middle of the night they might come out and pull out your rose bushes. What? Yeah, and just wreck your garden or, you know, damage your car. Anything to say, I'm mad at you and, and I'm, you know, I'm going to make you pay. I'm going to keep, I want to keep you subservient and a good way to do it is to keep you worried. Do we have a little bit of a culture of, oh, he was just really angry so he just was a bit hot-headed and he did stupid stuff? I mean, do we, do we allow that stuff? Do we let it happen? I think we let it happen. And and when you add up all those things that happen, there's quite a pattern of it. And that, that pattern of damage to property is often, you know, overlooked or explained away, but actually it's all part of a hostile pattern and it's premeditated often, extremely premeditated. In the middle of the night, coming and pulling out your rose bushes, you know, because... It's like to say, I'm still here, I'm still watching you and I'm going to really, oh, you love those rose bushes, I'm pulling them up. That's a fairly clear charge, isn't it? But if you can't exactly prove who it was who did that, you know it was him who came in the middle of the night and pulled out your rose because you know, he knows you, he lo- you love your rose bushes. The judge may not be so taken with that. That quite often a woman who's experiencing family violence will find things around her house and her car and the things that she loved damaged and broken and no no one says anything or does anything. We all need to say something and do something. If we happen to know that person who did that thing, maybe saying something, it's not okay that you damage your stuff. And even if you're mad at the time, other ways to be mad. Don't, you know, you just wrecked her beloved grandmother's dinner set that she inherited for example and no one's going to do anything about that necessarily because men say to their partners you won't be able to get it you know you won't nothing's going to happen they're not going to stop me no one's going to do anything I can talk my way out of anything and often that's what happens um the other people who may be able to be bystanders when it comes to damage to property What's coming to mind for me are rental agencies, maintenance people, anybody who comes into the house. In my line of work, I also see many women paying the price for the abuse of men because the service provider like the rental agency or the institution or the organisation didn't understand. They didn't get it. So every one of them should have a, a family violence type policy and to know what to look for and to work out what to do about that. Has your company got one? Did you even know you needed one until now? As I've said before, this is not about making anyone feel guilty because there's no simple answer here. It's just about giving you information that you mightn't have had before to help you take bystander action. Because what's that phrase? 
The standard you walk past is the standard you accept. And I think most people would struggle to accept what they've heard in this podcast. Before we get into some more details about threats, I want to understand why more isn't done about damage to property because it seems like the evidence is there. So let's get into the legalese with Elise Whitmore and Yvette Seatall from the Women's Legal Service Tasmania. Thinking back to a client that I had a little while ago, um, the impact of damage to property for her was quite extreme. Um, She was in a rental property. Um, She had a partner who she had given her consent to be at the property um, and he had done extensive damage and she was actually being evicted from her property on the basis that that there had been ongoing family violence and ongoing damage to property. She was chasing her tail, trying to fix things within the property and pay for that. Um, But it got to the point where the landlord had just had enough um, and was evicting her on that basis. What, what does she do? What, what happens there? And how does the law help her? Um, that was a bit of a complicated legal argument. Um, she saw me. Um, we helped her with an application through the court um, regarding that and we were successful. We, we were able to negotiate with the landlord in the end on her behalf um, but there were really limited legal options at that point for her because she had provided her consent for him to be at the property and the law says if you've let someone on and they've damaged something, that you are responsible for that. Is there a conviction for the perpetrators here for damage to property under law? Yes, so it is included in the Family Violence Act as being part of the definition of family violence. And So how does that happen? How does that usually play out if someone is going to be convicted for this sort of stuff? So there might be evidence of photographs that have been taken of the damage, um, of repair. People coming in to to fix things might give evidence of what the extent of damage was, Um, valuations of things that might have been ruined, wrecked, disposed of, damage or say damage to pets. I know that that sounds like we talk about pets as property, but but we actually do um, in the law. And so that falls under damage to property here as well. So making threats to injure and kill pets. Not, or not returning a pet mm. or just taking a pet um, and then, you know, the children and the partner not having it. It's the kind of stuff, I mean, I feel like everybody will be breathing in there about injuring pets or killing pets, yet maybe we put up with injuring or killing women, which seems really, really strange. Well, look, often um, vets are in a really prime um, position as bystanders and they've been quite aware of this for a while because on a lot of the risk assessments that are done, uh, particularly those that are done by police, one of the questions that's asked when women uh, report family violence is if there's been a history of injuring pets because it's a really high indicator that there is um, risk to people as well. When does this usually occur in the the cycle of family violence? It's often an escalation, Penny, uh, when the property gets damaged uh, or it might be when someone has expressed that they want to leave So it's and there might not have been a history previously of um, physical violence. So it is an indicator of escalation. 
there's almost a cultural excuse that um, that these things are just a, a natural way that people express emotion, and it's not. Um, it's it's a way that perpetrators um, try to inflict harm on the people on the victims of family violence. Um, how do we have that conversation? If I'm the maintenance bloke and I'm stereotyping here, and you know, there's a woman in the house. That must be a funny dynamic to try and have a conversation to be able to support this woman if you are indeed worried and to just suggest that a bloke might just go, oh, what's going on here? I mean, what what's an easy way or what's a good way to do that? I think it depends on your personality and how you have conversations generally. It might be that you slip a brochure into the letterbox or under the door when you know that she's going to receive that. Um, it might be that you ask whether she's okay. Um, it might also depend on reading the situation and whether she's comfortable having those conversations, but she might have just been waiting for someone to ask. And I guess we worry about what if I ask and I'm wrong? Um, that's got to be a big thing, doesn't it? Is It doesn't matter if you're wrong. That's a really interesting question. I think I'd rather ask and be wrong than to not have asked to start with. Sort of that it's not my business. Um, should I get involved in that? Is it up to me? It's easy to say, oh, it's, it's, not, it's not my problem. It's up to all of us. And I think that's part of the conversations that we're having now, um, the part of changing the culture around talking about family violence. This is all of our responsibility. This isn't the responsibility of the woman in the house who's got the cracked window. Um, this is this is everyone's problem because we don't want to live in a society where these types of behaviours are okay and accepted. Now I know that we're making this sound easier than it probably will be that first time, but now you know it's not going to be easy to not ask either, which is sort of the point of listening to this. And you can get help to learn more too. Agencies like the Women's Legal Service in Tasmania help workplaces with training and resources about family violence. They talk about the different levels of active bystanding. So the first is to diffuse. Show that someone's behaviour is not okay. You can do that by rolling your eyes, shaking your head, not laughing, making a light-hearted comment like, what decade are you living in? The next is to check in and support the target of the abuse or harassment by asking if they are okay, acknowledging what has happened or just backing up other supporters. The next level is calling out disrespectful behaviour, such as purposely changing the topic, like, okay, let's move on, or making it about the group, am I the only one who is uncomfortable with this? Or talk to the disrespectful person in private to explain appropriate behaviour in the workplace. And the final level is to report it to management, perhaps about how HR policies are being disregarded or need to be strengthened, or to access sexual harassment or other incident reporting systems. Or if you're in public and the behaviour is violent or threatening, you can call the police. If you want more details, you'll find links and resources and fact sheets in our show notes. Would you recognise threatening behaviour or what it might sound like? I was being told I had to relax and if I acted normal for the day, then I could have my son back the next day. So I was doing just trying to relax. I was reading the newspaper in my son lounge 
he popped his head out and he yelled something at me. And I said, pardon? And I did say, if you want to talk to me, come and talk to me. Don't just shout things out at me. And then he actually grabbed me by the throat and said to me, he said to me, you're fucked in the head, get some help. Um, another time was when he was, he was yelling at me and he was coming towards me. I didn't even know what he was saying. It didn't make sense. And I just ran as far as I could run. And I found myself in a corner of the garden near the gate, but I, I couldn't get the gate. I just cowed in a ball. And although he'd only got physical as in touching me, and then when he saw me cower, he almost snapped the other way and said, you're okay, what are you doing? Why are you doing, why are you cowering in the corner in the garden? I'm not gonna hurt you. And I was thinking, he's not understanding. So I'd take myself out of the situation. I'd get in the car. Then I'd get a phone call from him saying, um, you're being erratic, you've just run off. We don't know whether to call the police or the ambulance to try and find you. You're, you've just run off for no reason. Uh, we don't know what to do with you. I was like, you were attacking me, so I've left. No, I've never attacked you. Remember back in episode two, how we talked about coercive control and the concept of gaslighting, making someone feel that their own thoughts aren't real. I just can't help thinking about how the damage here goes beyond the words. It almost seems like the only way we can start to better recognise this stuff is to hear more examples. Plus, sometimes a threat might not seem like such a big deal on its own. But when we know what other questions to ask, we might see that pattern of behaviour that tells a different story. Here's some of what Torna Pittman's clients and research participants have told her about the threats they've received. I've, ta I've talked with women who have had the most amazing threats, as blunt and obvious as, if you don't do as I say, I'm going to chuck you down one of those mine shafts up at Ross Arden. Less obvious, such as, oh, I have friends who will do away with people when they're being irritating, you know. Um, every There's a different styles of family violence and, and, there's, and there's different ways to threaten. And then there's really clever and more subtle ways to threaten which are veiled and you, you get the, the threat underneath the words but you could never, he could easily talk himself out of that threat. So, for example, he might say, well, you know, plenty of um, women when they don't do uh, the right thing by their partners, they sort of cop it for that. It's not a real threat but it's just spoken about and, and because of the emotional content and the context of that comment, you know it's a threat. Mm. Uh, for a woman to explain that, sounds she feels like she's being stupid, but she's not. She's quite right. She, that She'll get the feeling in her stomach like, oh. So, so many women will say to me, I had a whole different kinds of threats. Now, often they don't even realise they're threats till we start talking about the relationship. So not everyone recognises that those things are threats but then they realise that there's also an unspoken threat. You will do as I want or else. 
quite a lot of women will say that at the beginning of the relationship they do get a punishment like a slap in the face. It's the only time they ever got physically abused but that slap in the face at the beginning of the relationship was in order to say that's my or else. How do we recognise when threats are being used as a form of abuse for someone that we care about? Well, often, of course, a person will be quite scared. So say they're sitting with you in your lounge room and they keep looking at their phone all their time, they've got to be home. Why do you have to be home? Well, because, you know, um, my husband comes home at 6 o'clock and dinner's got to be ready. So what happens if it isn't? Oh, well... um, and she'll get confused and flustered because she's not sure what will happen. In some relationships, there's just an unspoken threat. And in other relationships, it's like if dinner's not ready by six, then, you know, there will be consequences. And and they know what the consequences are and they fear for that. So you can often tell by a woman's agitation. She's a bit agitated. She can't quite explain to you why, but she's frightened. No woman should really have to have dinner on the table at six, for an example. There's no reason for that. And why would she be worried about, say, getting into trouble? What would be wrong with him getting a bit upset about something? So he gets upset about something. What is the what then thing? You know, that's the thing I ask women about. So what then? What then if he gets angry? Well, then, you know, he might. He, he might drag that on for the whole night or he'll surreptitiously take away something um, in the relationship like if we were going to go on holiday, we're not going to go or if I was about to get a new car, we don't get it or he'll just take away, he'll retaliate. Quite often what it is is a woman will get, she knows it is the withholding of approval. That's the what then. And it can go all the way to being absolutely bashed within an inch of her life. There's different ways to withhold approval, yelling and screaming at you or just simply not talking to you or retaliating by um, giving her less housekeeping money. So how do we help? We will say to the victim inevitably, those threats, they're not okay. If you happen to know the person who's giving the threats and you hear them, or you pick it up or you know about it, you can say exactly that. Threats are not okay. Everyone's going to have their own ways of doing this and it goes back to what I went through before. Diffuse, check in, call out and report. And just on that, the reporting of threats. What we can be sure of is that all threats of family violence are illegal in Tasmania under the family violence provisions. But again, that doesn't mean that everybody who makes these threats are being charged for it. Let's get back to the lawyers, Elise and Yvette. So threats is a really great catch-all that is at the end of the definition of family violence under the Act. And it basically says that to threaten to do any of the forms of family violence that are listed is also an offence. So threats include um, things like you'll never see the children again or you're not going to get anything out of a property settlement, so don't even try. It might be a threat to um, harm pets. It might be a threat to, I'd rather burn the house down before I see you get anything. And these are all things that we see quite regularly through the door. And it's illegal to do that? It is. It's a it's a family violence offence under the Act. When women talk to you about the threats that have been made towards them, 
How often have they believed them? I think women are the best judge of whether they are safe or not. Um, They have lived in that relationship. They have lived that experience. And if they are coming to me or to you or to anyone else and saying this threat has been made and I'm scared, that is a huge risk factor because her fear is a great indication of how likely that threat is to be carried out. How does the law look at fear? And maybe that's a a silly question, but a lot of what we've talked about in this series is the presence of fear in someone, perhaps before something really tangible happens. And I'm wondering how the law recognises fear, if at all. Well, again, Penny, it's really how it's going to be described in the material that's put before the court. So, um, you know, the legal language around that is to talk about the intimidation and the control um, and the patterns of behaviour. We've talked about it as a course of conduct. So it's all of that that really needs to be described so that the court can understand and almost feel the fear of the applicant, survivor, victim in the circumstance that's really critical in those kinds of cases would be how I'd describe it. But yeah, it's a very subjective thing, um, the fear. It's really why there does need to be some kind of risk assessment process that sits across both state and and federal courts so that that can be um, asked about at the court level and so that the risk to um, women and children is actually on the radar of both all the courts. And the other kind of threat that we haven't talked about, which is actually quite common, is a threat, if you leave me, I'll kill myself. How common is that and what do women tell you about the impact that that threat has on their ongoing decisions, I guess? That is remarkably common. I do understand that threats of suicide should be taken seriously. Um, It's difficult in these contexts, though, because it is used as a form to control the actions of the other party. It instills in them a sense of responsibility over someone else's life. Is that what they explain to you? Does it? Do they say that it has changed their decision-making process? Absolutely, yeah. absolutely. Mm. And I think as women we take on that emotional and mental labour for others um, to a far greater extent and we are more primed to respond in that way. I am going to repeat what Elisa said, that any threats of suicide do need to be taken seriously. If you need support with your own mental health or to support someone else, there are services who can help you, including Lifeline, who you can contact on 13 11 14, and we've listed other services in our show notes. If you're listening to this as someone who wants to become an active bystander, You will have heard us talking about linking people up with support services many times, often as a step before the police. Have you ever wondered why? It's about having an integrated kind of multidisciplinary response, um, Penny, and there's a lot of words in that, but what it really means is coming at family violence from a range of different perspectives and lenses. So having, uh, you know, a a support person like a counsellor, helping you with a safety plan, having some legal advice before you go so you know it the parameters of what an order can look like and then going and advocating um, for the order that you need to protect yourself. 
it's such a hard thing to do to leave uh, an abusive relationship and what we also know is that women do it repeatedly before they're ultimately successful at getting away. I can understand that the thing you might want to do as a friend is to, you know, grab your friend and say, we're going to the police, this is not okay. I mean, is that an okay bystander thing to do? I I feel like that is the ultimate way to step in, um, but perhaps not. I think that my position is, and it might not be everyone's position, is that when someone has been in an abusive relationship um, and has been controlled by another person and sometimes for an, a really long time, um, helping to empower them to start making their own decisions and to go at their own pace is one of the most important things. To make sure that they are listened to, they are believed, they are supported, but ultimately that they are starting to make some decisions on their own behalf moving forward as well. Many of the people that um, come to us, Penny, choose not to make a complaint necessarily to police about family violence. And I know that that's also the experience of a lot of other services. And there's a whole range of reasons why that's the case. They might not be ready to leave. They might not have the financial resources. They might not have anywhere to go with the current housing position. Uh, and it might they might just think it's better for the kids for them to put up with it. So they, there's just so many different reasons why people um, choose to stay. Uh, and we really need to respect that and we need to also understand that not every incidence of family violence results in a family violence order being issued or in fact ever sought and it might not get to the police. And I think that's particularly a feature in the Tasmanian context. How come? I think there's still a culture of people not coming forward and not talking about the full range of family violence they've been exposed to and the full range of abuse, which is why we're talking to you today and why we've created these podcasts so that the community can be better informed and better aware of all the different ways that family violence can look and all the different ways they can choose to respond. So how's your awareness going? This podcast series roughly follows the escalation of family violence. In episode one, we talked about misogynistic comments and how we might step in. And here we are talking about damage to property and threats. Our next episode looks at stalking and it might not be what you think. They've had a tracker put on their car or um, he's able to monitor her computer or her phone. It's not knowing whether someone has been reading the text messages that you've been sending to your friend. Like that feels like a really intimate violation of not having any privacy, of not knowing when you're alone. That's in our next episode. And look, this stuff, this content, this information, these stories we hope will help reduce family violence in our communities. And if you can help us share it around and get more people listening, we'd love that. Maybe a share on social or a review in your podcast app, or maybe send it to your local member. I also want to give that reminder again that we've talked about tough stuff. And in our show notes, you'll find that there are plenty of services, resources like fact sheets that can help you, your workplace, or someone you care about. As we all do our best to go beyond a bystander to family violence. My name's Penny Terry and you've been listening to Rule of Thumb, a podcast for the Women's Legal Service Tasmania.
This podcast is funded by the Tasmanian Government's Department of Communities as part of the COVID-19 Family Violence Response.